Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so thrilled today to have as my guest, Professor Michael Helfand, the Brendan Mann Foundation Chair in Law and Religion at Pepperdine Law School, a place, by the way, everybody should visit because it's on a beautiful cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Michael went to yeshiva, undergraduate. His JD is from Yale, a PhD in political science from Yale. He clerked for the Sixth Circuit, worked for Davis Polk. He also runs a free exercise uh, of law clinic at Yale. So his commute is Malibu to New Haven, which has to be one of the most arduous commutes I've ever heard. Michael, thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be here with you today, Eric. So I'm really excited to talk to you. You you are um, all things religion. And um, we've been doing a lot of talking here at Georgia State about the Roberts Court and the religion clauses. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time on. I should mention you've co-authored or authored a number of books and more articles and essays than anybody can count. So let's begin with this. The uh, First Amendment contains two provisions regarding religion, the Establishment Clause, and the Free Exercise Clause. What do you view as the main purpose of both, the main goal of that clause? Um, and let me ask it this way, maybe. Both at the time they were... Um, ratified and today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't have deep views about at the time how they were, um, how they were understood. You know, the historical record on this is, uh, how should we put it? A hot mess. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, um, let me just say that my preferred way of viewing it, I would say, is to make space for, make space for religion. What I mean by that is, it both has a component that, um, to the extent possible, um, the goal is to allow religion to flourish and at the same time to make sure that religion is not, um, no religion and religion generally is not discriminated against. So you might think of this, I think you've referred to this this way on other podcasts, uh, episodes. I started, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm trying to make my way through the entire, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, both a liberty and an equality component when you put the clauses together. And what um, what started your interest in this particular corner of constitutional law? Because you, you've done so much work on it. Um, I think I'm supposed to say something super duper academic here. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> not on this uh, podcast. You don't have to. We, we just tell it like it is here, Michael. That's all we do. Okay, good. Let's. <laughs> I, I think it's because I'm religious. I grew up religious, and if you are a, a Young, young person, um, trying to figure out what it means to be a person of faith in America in the 20th and 21st century. At some point, many people like start poking around, like, what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? How's my faith protected? What are my responsibilities as a religious citizen, um, to the country? And so it just felt very natural. I actually started in grad school. Um, and I went to grad school when I would say multiculturalism was the kind of, big way uh, through which a lot of uh, political theory programs um, ran a lot of courses, etc. And that was really interesting to me. You know, multiculturalism at its core is uh, trying to find a uh, pla uh, place for multiple cultures, different kinds of faith, different kinds of communities. Um, and that's where it naturally led me. Um, I would say that I found some of the political theory, like um, my brain ended up having a bit of a practical side to it, which is super shocking. Not too practical. I'm still an academic. <laughs> Um, it did, it started to wonder, well, I understand these theories, but how do they work? Um, like what uh, on the ground, do you, you mean like on the ground? Yeah, that's right. And my wife was in law school at the time and she said, this is great what you're doing in your PhD program. Best advice I've ever gotten. I always say, but you should probably try law school out for a bit. Um, she thought oh, I would find it professionally and personally satisfying, which I would say I did. So that's, I think that's really how I got into it. Um, just in terms of why I've become interested and uh, why I continue to think and write about it. When you were here, we, we had a, a, a panel a few weeks ago um, here at Georgia State on, law, on the Roberts Court and the religion clauses. You said something, you said a lot of fun things during that panel. I really enjoyed it. But you said one thing, you threw it away. You kind of said it under your breath, but I got it. And it, it really interested me and, and hit me in a way that I was unexpected. Um, we were talking about... Um, exercise clause and exemptions and all that stuff. And you threw away a line where you said, Orthodox Jews back in the day, um, w w their employers would make them work on, on Saturday, which is their Sabbath, of course, um, which they wouldn't, couldn't do. So they would have a job until Friday, get fired for not working on Saturday and find a new job on Monday. And this was, this was just something that was known in common. 
Can you? I, that's the first I'd ever heard about that. Um, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Uh, I think the yeah, you you poke around. I was just talking to somebody else since we had that panel who was just telling me about how their maybe their father would regularly get fired or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is just. Uh, Jews in the commercial marketplace, I'd say more specifically as employees, um, and Orthodox Jews in particular with strict rules um, uh, with respect to, um, you know, observance of, of a Friday night and Saturday Sabbath. I mean, it did not work well um, in the United States in the, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It just was at odds with the, with the, work, with the work week. And as a result, listen, my grandfather was an attorney, and, and as a result of his, uh, you know, who he was and how he operated. Um, he had a lot of trouble getting clients. He was a solo practitioner. Um, and, um, it was very, very difficult for him to, uh, to find clients right. and lots of folks, um, over, you know, over time you'd work till Friday and then people would say like, I'll see you tomorrow. And you would say no. And, and that would be that. Now, for a lot of Orthodox Jews, what that meant was, you know, a change in practice. Um, there are a lot of stories, you hear stories within my community all the time, how there would be, you'd have a store attached to your place of, you know, where you lived. And so where you lived, you would observe the Sabbath. But when you crossed the threshold into your store, then you stopped observing the Sabbath. Now, there's no Jewish law rule that works like this, but this is the way in which, you know, my faith community tried to adapt to, you know, what the commercial marketplace looked like. Right. Um, in the United States, you take that into account also like Sunday closing laws, you know, you couldn't be open on Sunday. And if you were also closed on Sabbath, what the issues that created were. So, you know, Sabbath issues and also, you know, you read like sociologists in the 1950s and 1960s, they assumed that Orthodox Judaism would disappear hmm. um, because there was no way that it could um, adequately adapt to the marketplace. There's too much discrimination in the workplace. And ultimately, people would have to make certain kinds of choices. And those choices would be to feed their families um, over and above religious commitments. That hasn't been the story. In many ways, it's the story of how anti-discrimination law pushed back on that trend and provided space for, for Orthodox Jews. But that's, that's what life looked like. The Supreme Court upheld Sunday closing laws. Um, did you agree with that decision? Um, oh, this is an easy one. No, um, <laughs> not surprising. It's the decision of the, of the early sixties. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was hard to imagine a, a circumstance where the United States in 1961 said that Sunday closing laws was unconstitutional. It was so woven into the fabric of the United States. Um, and, and even the fact that Orthodox Jews brought that lawsuit, Brownfeld v. Brown, yeah. um, in 1961 was highly controversial. The lawyer you know, you read the history of it. The lawyer for the plaintiffs asked um, uh, secular Jewish organizations not to file briefs because he didn't want to be perceived as being aligned with the atheists. Hmm. And because it would be worse in 1961 than being aligned with the atheists. Think about McCarthyism, all, all the stuff. Um, so, you know, I, it, it's hard to imagine it coming out another way. But no, ultimately, I think when the Supreme Court says that um, Sunday closing laws merely made life, quote unquote, more expensive for Orthodox Jews. I think that was a stingy way to think about how we make space, um, how we make space for people with different kinds of faith commitments and everything from the commercial marketplace to, you know, other spheres of the human condition. Um, so we're, we're going to get into doctrine in a second. I want to ask you a fun question first, or maybe not a fun question, but I'm curious your answer. It is my opinion that a trans person would have a better chance of becoming president of the United States than an open atheist. Do you agree with that? Oh, gosh. How am I supposed to answer that question? Right. Um, I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, do you think an atheist could be elected president in this country? Open atheist. Open, I, I'm an atheist and I'm proud of it. Any scenario? I don't, no? I, I, would, I would like to think yes. Um, but, you know, there's probably a reason why I'm not a uh, political prognosticator in this world. <laughs> okay. I, I think the answer is no, but you know, you know I thought that. Um, <laughs> okay. So I think let's start touching on some of the hot button issues involving religion that the court has been talking about uh, for the last few years. And probably the most controversial, certainly the one that I think the American public might care the most about, is this kind of conflict 
between people who operate commercial wedding services or bakeries or whatever um, and their desire not to open their business to same-sex weddings uh, and in some cases to uh, celebrations of gender identity and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm kind of curious if you think, this is kind of a loaded question, but is it more complicated than balancing the desire for religious freedom with the desire to protect traditionally disadvantaged minorities and then making a value judgment about which is more important? How should we think about this? Yeah, I think there are probably like good ways and bad ways to address these kinds of cases. Um, and I mean, I, I want to focus on like ways to answer the question, like the method as opposed to okay, sure. as opposed to answer. So like, you know, my view on this is like front end um, inquiries are, are probably bad ways and back end are good ways. And here's what I mean by that. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about Sunday closing laws and the way in which, you know, members of my faith community challenged that before the Supreme Court in 1961. My issues with the, the court's opinion. You know, there's been a lot of folks, um, academics, scholars, sometimes judges um, who have thought the way to analyze these cases is by trying to cut them off at the at the pass mm -hmm. to say that there's no true religious exercise at stake here. Um, either it's too attenuated or it's for-profit businesses and businesses are about making money and 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 the free exercise clause is about people who are engaged in different kinds um, of practices. And uh, you know, all these different ways in which to say that we shouldn't even it, it doesn't even get in the game, these sorts of claims. And I, I, Michael, I, I want to be clear about one thing. We are just talking religion now because there's, there's obviously a big speech component to these cases, but let's put those, that's right. let's put those aside. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's super fair. Yeah. Um, and you know, when I think about it through, again, as you say, the prism of religion, I, I think that's a mistake. I think when we start stacking the deck in terms of what it means to exercise religion, and ways in which it isn't isn't done, I think what we ultimately do um, is we tilt the scales against um, the way in which some faith communities um, exercise exercise their faith. I mean, I'll take mine again. You know, I've already confessed I'm probably in, in this uh, industry because I care about um, thinking through how my personal and my community's faith commitments work in the United States. You know, one quarter of the of the uh, code of Jewish law is dedicated to religious obligations that exist in the commercial sphere. I mean, there is just tons and tons of law on this subject. And when I would read people describing like, well, that's a for-profit business that has nothing to do with religious exercise, I'd be like, so I hear you. I understand why from certain faith perspectives that makes sense. For mine, it's completely incoherent. It's, it's literally like I have so many obligations when it comes to how I engage in commercial, in commercial practices. Um, it, it just strikes me as weird to hear somebody say for-profit entities aren't engaged in religious exercise. Does well, that make sense? Well, so one of the reasons I wanted to have you on so badly is because you and I really disagree about this. <laughs> and I wanted to air that disagreement um, for others um, and, for, and for me to learn more because we really disagree. Um, and, and I think on two very big points. But let's start with just, I don't know, the text. The text refers to the exercise of religion. And it has been, and I wrote, I've written an article about this, and it's my view that selling widgets, whether it's wedding cakes or, 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 or photography services or, or really cheap furniture or whatever it is, that's not religious exercise. Hobby Lobby was not exercising religion, in my opinion, when it was providing health insurance to its workers. They were, they were doing something else. but And Hobby Lobby gets complicated because it's a huge billion-dollar corporation. The wedding baker is not exercising religion when he bakes a cake. Let's just start there. Why is baking a cake a religious exercise? I, I mean, it would, be if it's for, it would be if it's for a religious ceremony. But I mean, for a secular wedding, why is a wedding cake anything religious? Yeah, I, I, hear, I guess, can I ask you a question? You know, because um, yeah. you didn't, and you might have wanted to, when we talked about the Sunday closing law cases yeah. in 61, and when, you know, those folks made a free exercise claim, they said, forcing us to close on Sunday um, undermines our free exercise of religion. I take it to be that you, dis you you agree with the court's decision then. This isn't religious exercise. It's just the business. Um, no, making that's, not, that's not how I feel. And here's why. And this is the big difference, Michael. This is it. And I, and I understand we may get to a, a, 
question of degree at some point. Now, the government should not be able to put a obstacle in front of you and your religious exercise without a very good reason. And if you're and 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 if you're being blocked um, from 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 uh, worshiping on your Sabbath because of secular laws, I I think that's 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 hard. Um, if I were king, I know what I would do, but I'm not king, and I respect. So that's hard. But that's not this. Oh, well, we gotta we gotta make you king. I guess that's the answer. <laughs> that's Question. not this. Um, wa- wanting to to go. Um, practice my exercise my religion on my sabbath is not the same as baking a cake for a same-sex wedding that has zero religious message one involves conscience and one involves exercise and it doesn't say the free conscience of religion it says the free exercise of religion um i i hear what you're saying this is going to be a fun disagreement we may not get anywhere else in this entire conversation (laughs) You know the 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 folks who who filed that suit, they there was no um, requirement that they um, run a business on Sunday. I mean, Sunday closing laws just said you have to be closed on Sunday. So, and there's nothing, there's no exercise required by the Jewish faith that says you must work on Sunday. So maybe the court was right. Um, just stay closed on Sunday. No, no biggie. But 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 I think that's not a fair description of what's happening with Sunday closing laws. What's happening with Sunday closing laws is people who observe Saturday as their Sabbath, Seventh-day Adventists, Jewish people, others. Um, this is – if I was – if I thought that uh, Sunday closing laws were based on secular reasons, then I, I – Are then, you going to make an establishment clause move, but, try to get this out of exercise clause? No, I'm, I'm just saying problem. we know why – we know why Sunday's the day. We all know that because – I'm I'm with I'm with you, but okay. the court had had but, but, but wait, 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 <laughs> that we can, there's at least a reasonable argument that Sunday closing laws were based on impermissible religious purposes. There is no I'm such argument yeah. about anti-discrimination laws in Colorado. Anti-discrimination laws okay. in Colorado were not passed for religious reasons. They were completely secular. There's a big difference there. I'm, I hear you, but it's why I asked you about Brownfeld after the court had already jettisoned the Establishment Clause argument, and it was purely focused on the free exercise claim, which wasn't about, you know, are we privileging one faith community over another? You know, there, the, the, the plaintiffs made a different kind of argument. They said, listen, you're forcing us to close on Sunday, and we also, our faith commitment says we're closed on Saturday, and how are we going to compete in the commercial marketplace if we're only open five days a week? You know, that was the claim. And, you know, I think the allure of the claim, at least to me, I don't know about to you, but at least to me, the allure of the claim is um, the idea that the way in which uh, the background laws or not even background, the laws worked, um, put commercial pressure on people of a particular faith community such that they had to pick um, either I'm going to have a functioning business or I'm going to remain committed to my faith. Um, to me, that choice is what generates the problem in Brownfield. It was what, again, as I said at the outset, it was what sociologists thought would um, end my faith community, um, that pressure. It would just be too much to bear. And so, you know, you'd end up well, with well, a decreasing numbers of Orthodox Jews. And that, that's, that was the claim. And the court rejected that. They just said, nah, it's just, it's just a little more expensive. And so when I look at the claims of other, um, commercial entities that say, listen, these, these laws, they're going to, they're going to force us to make a choice between either having this business or remaining committed to our faith. I view them as structurally similar. And so it's that reason I think, you know, because I view them all somewhat similarly in this way, I see the front end inquiries as dangerous as, um, tilting the scales, um, putting, um, a certain kind of pressure that could ultimately, you know, make faith certain kinds of faith communities, you know, in the extreme, um, just disappear. Now, that's not to say there ought not be like back end questions. So, like once you get through that and you say, "Listen, I get it. People have lots of different kinds of faith commitments, and they put them to certain kinds of pressure in the commercial marketplace where they have to choose." Um, we don't want to do that unless there's something super duper important going on. You know, that I think is right. You know, there, there when courts, um, 
look so, at these dilemmas. Uh, I take it then you're oh. sorry to interrupt, but I take it you you are you are without saying how you would ultimately decide. You're sympathetic to the idea that maybe there's a compelling state interest in fighting discrimination against traditionally disadvantaged. Yeah, and I and I and I struggle I struggle with that all the time. I've probably written things that are flat out contradictory on this issue over time. A hard issue. I, I um. You know, some days I say, well, maybe we can just make this work. And some days I'm like, oh, you probably shouldn't make this work. And maybe it depends on lots of contextual factors to figure out whether there's a compelling okay. interest. But courts are at their best and legislatures are at their best when they're not trying to parse like what counts as religious exercise. And they're more focused on um, what are the kinds of civil um, secular considerations that ought to ultimately say, this is too important. We don't have we, we can't make space for this kind of practice. I, I guess I don't I don't see that in, in, the, in this sense. This, the, as uh, unlike Sunday closing laws, the, the, the people who voted on and passed Sunday closing laws, we can generalize there was a religious something in the background of that. That's why they, they picked Sunday for religious reasons. They didn't pick it for secular reasons. Again, yep. not true for anti-discrimination laws. And I guess um, I still need an argument as to why the free exercise clause is, a, is, is, in, is, in, is in the eyes of many a 24-7 cloak that if anything, anything violates my religious conscience, regardless of whether or not it gets in the way of exercise, conscience, um, I don't, see how a society works that way. I don't want the back end question, as you call it, the compelling state interest test is going to be a mess at the end of the day. And I still don't understand why selling widgets is a, selling yarmulkes to temples might be a religious exercise, but selling furniture to the public is not. How do we get religious exercise out of that? Yeah, so it's not that you're, at least in my view, it's not that you're engaged in religious exercise when you sell widgets. Although, by the way, Jewish law has a ton of rules about pricing and, and, right, and, and uh, prohibitions on price gouging and uh, undue competition. Like, there would be a variety of ways in which when I'm actually selling widgets that I might be engaged in religious exercise, but those are peculiarities. And, that, and, that, and, that, but, and more importantly, neither Hobby Lobby nor the baker falls in that category. That's correct. Yeah, I'm just throwing it out there just for fun because yeah. we're having a good time together. Yeah. But, um, to me, you know, in some ways it's instructive, the story you had me start with about kind of my faith community yeah. and what pressure in the commercial marketplace, at least people thought what what the consequence was going to be. And what, you know, ultimately, when I talk about the free exercise clause, I see it as a way to protect um, religion and religious communities. Um from the use of law in a way, in a, in a way that isn't, I'm going to say necessary now, I don't mean necessary, I mean really the compelling government, you know, strict scrutiny, but um, ways in which the law might squeeze out faith communities from, from pub, not public and private life, make it impossible to, to, to be a committed member of that faith community. Can we stop there? Because now we're really going to fight. Um, what you call yeah. remain a committed member of the faith community. Okay, this is going to get hard, so I apologize in advance. Um, to me, in the LGBT, I'm talking about it's just that one context where someone does not want to do a same-sex wedding. Um, to me, is quite obviously discrimination and hate towards a group of people. And boy, um, as someone who's not a person of faith, it, it really shakes me to the core when someone says, my faith requires me to discriminate against this person. Um, I, I don't think hate based on faith is any different than hate based on logic or illogical or secular reasons. So again, I, I'm is hate based on faith different than just hate? Well, I mean, in some way, I mean, obviously. So I, I want to start by like that felt a little bit like uh, asking me if I, I ceased beating my wife. You know, the philosophical. <laughs> Under, I'm well, like, there's no answer if I accept the premise. Okay. Um, fair enough. So That's I, fair. I don't, I don't quite want to do that, but I want to answer your question. So in some ways it's the same and in some ways it's different. Um, that, that I, I think that's the point of it. And, you know, to the extent that anyone like yourself or anybody else, um, or me 
at least at some points, I don't know, maybe on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, <laughs> feels that the overwhelming uh, importance um, of anti-discrimination law, it has such um, purchase, it provides such an important um, protection of the underlying infrastructure of American society. That, that's what that's what anti-discrimination law is doing. Um, you know, really, to me, the place for that isn't in trying to figure out whether somebody is doing something religious, but whether the countervailing government interest is important enough to overcome, um, to trump the, the religious exercise at stake. You know, it's, there's something I think, it's not just as a legal issue. It strikes me as like a functioning society. If we, if we continue to take the approach where we tell people what we think they're really doing when they think they're engaged in religious exercise, that it's, it's false. It's, it's, it's not, it's not exercise. It's not religious. It's mere hate. It's all of this stuff. If that's the approach we take, um, in terms of explaining why they ought to lose, as opposed to we hear you, there are just these other government interests that, that are more important. I think it's not just as a legal matter, we make a mistake. Um, but I think it's toxic to the way in which we're going to navigate these kinds of of culture war claims. Yeah, we 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 really disagree. Um, I am. Um, That's okay. Uh, yeah, it is okay. Um, toxic. What is toxic to me is the idea that someone entering the commercial marketplace is being regulated by a really important law that was not passed in any sense, to hurt religion, um, that is trying to remedy centuries of discrimination against certain people. Um, and forget the law, throw it out the window. Let's just talk yeah. human feelings, raw gut here. If I had the baker in front of me, I would say, I don't understand your religious objection. I really don't. Um, I am very confident this is not what Jesus taught. <laughs> that person had to be Christian. Um, I am very confident that that we're supposed to invite the prostitute in, not throw them out. I'm sure I'm mixing up 17 different stories there. But um, why won't you accept these people for who they are? And why would your religion do something so dastardly as to say two people who love each other so much and want to be committed to each other like any other heterosexual couple, um, you're so against that that you will impose upon them a dignitary harm they can't even shop in your store? It makes me sad, Michael. i got to be yeah. honest. Well, I think, I hope, that the overwhelming majority of people who look at these kinds of intractable, uh, intractable dilemmas are sad. I, I, think that's, I think there's probably no better way to look at it. This is, this is tragedy of the first order. Yeah. Um, this is people with incommensurable preferences um, incommensurable aspirations about how they want to live their lives, um, just in conflict. So of course it, I mean, it's, of course it's tragic. Um, there's no question about that. You know, if we're throwing out the law, the question is, eh, I don't know, one way to think about it is there's so many ways. One way to think about it is what do we think? I mean, you could be just purely like, uh, which way do we think is going to be more successful? Which way speaks to people as we, you know, if you were to walk into the, to the baker and say to him, I don't believe I believe you've erred as to Jesus's teachings. You know, is that something that that um, that he can actually hear? Because um, he, he, I assume, I've never met the guy, <laughs> but I assume he has deep views as to. I have no views on the subject, but I assume he has deep views as to what Jesus said and the the world places in his life and the sacrifice he's willing sacrifices he's willing to make over time. Um, in order to remain committed to those. Would it matter to you if it turned out we found a secret diary entry that in fact, eh, I don't really care, but I, I think America's falling apart. I like Donald Trump and these nice lawyers from Alliance Defending Freedom or wherever, wherever, not the wrong one, but whatever the one, whichever of the, of the right-wing public interest groups brought that lawsuit, funded that lawsuit. Would that make a difference to you? I mean, just to be clear, not... You're not saying to me, meaning to to me about how I think it works no, for him. I, see what what I what got lost to me in the whole and, and was getting lost because the Supreme Court is a case. You know this term about the it's a speech case, not a religion case. But what is getting yeah. lost in all of this 
is can we have an open discussion about why this society somewhat tolerates, I don't want to serve you because my religion tells me what you're doing violates the will of God, however you would put it. And I don't want to serve you because for secular reasons, I think homosexuals are a dire threat to our country and I just don't like them. I'm not a person of faith. What's the difference in those two things? Yeah, so here's my pitch to you. I think if you really want to encourage, if we really want to encourage open conversation on these issues, um, unless, you know, we really, really need to, and sometimes we do, but unless we really, really need to, I think the imposition of rules, regulations, the force of law, what what did uh, um, Robert cover? The the violence of the law. Um, I don't think it's going to foster that open conversation. I think people just harden in the face of regulations. I got that. I've got a teenager. I'm not supposed to talk about my teenagers on, on podcasts, but like, by the way, I, I, I have two of them and they say the same thing to me. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay. We're on the same page. If I impose my will, oh, forget it. It's over. It's just, everyone gets locked into where they are but, and the, the job's up. I, I guess um, I'm, well, I'm still confused. I really am. If you and I were going out for drinks and we observed. When are we doing it? When yeah. are we doing it? Well, we, well, we yeah, um, soon. Um, if, you, if, we, if we went out for drinks and we overheard a conversation, but, uh, you know, a conversation unlikely to occur in Malibu, but a conversation that might very well occur in rural Georgia um, about two people just, you know, just being totally um, bigoted about the LGBTQ community in all kinds of ways that I know, Michael, you wouldn't, I, I don't know you well, very well, but I know, you know, at some point that would bother you and you would be like, why are these people bigots and why are they doing this and all that? And at the very end, they add, because my religion says so. I don't know what my religion says so adds to me. In fact, if someone says, I've looked at the world and I think gays and lesbians and trans folks are, are, are a danger to this culture going to lead to this and lead to that. Nothing to do with faith, nothing to do with God. I'm just doing a kind of a a utilitarian look at this and it's bad. That to me is actually, I mean, it's totally indefensible, but I think it's more defensible than something we can't even discuss. My faith says I can't do this. We can't discuss that. There's no next sentence to that, but they both have the same effect. Yeah. I mean, ultimately if, if, if you're going to be sympathetic to the claims of, at least in some in some respects, the claims of accommodation, you know, ironically, I think Brian Leiter's got this right. You know, in so, to some degree, you know, one of the defining features of religion is that, again, to some extent, it is impermeable to evidence. Right. That's the, the nature, you know, and and he takes that in a different direction. But um, the nature of faith is is in part that it's faith. And, you know, it, you have to, all accommodation claims ultimately um, draw on um, some sort of assumption that religion and the protection of it and the making space of it is an important enough good to be enshrined in the First Amendment and therefore to be given effect in this world. And so that it, it does matter what the kinds of reasons are motivating conduct. Now, if you don't believe that, so, like, this is all going to be nonsense and gobbledygook. Well, but, and, and well, I don't think there are two ways around that. I, well, I'm not sure. I, I think we can protect. Okay, I, I you know, I've, I've given my, what I'm about to say to you, I've, I've done in presentations like 12 times. And I'm, no one agrees with me on this. I found one person in the country who agrees with me. So I'm probably really wrong and stubborn about this. But. Is it your wife? I, no, she agrees with me. Um. <laughs> Okay, there it is. There's the one person. Okay, there it is. <laughs> one law professor. Um, <laughs> I want to protect people's ability to exercise their religion. I do, even though I'm not a person of faith. I think it's really important. And I think that's why the Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause, are, it's a big reason why, why that's in the um, Constitution. Now, it's also true we want to protect non-religious folks, which is why you can't have a religious office and all that stuff. Um, but it has to be Religious exercise, not just exercise. And again, if, if the government is, is going to make it harder for you to pray on your Sabbath, that's one thing. 
I don't see a similar issue involved in the wedding photographer Baker, et cetera. I don't see it. They're saying we think homosexuality is a, I don't know what they're saying, but whatever it is, they're not being told to do anything and religious, and there's no religious obstacle being put in their way. When you run your business, you have to comply with safety regulations, whether or not they violate your religion or not, right? Why not non-discriminatory? Why not, why not non-discrimination laws? I just, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So I say this in other contexts and I mean this in the, Oh, the kind of <laughs> I'm getting nervous. way possible. <laughs> nah, don't get nervous. We don't get nervous with each other. We just met, but we don't get nervous with each other. You know, there, there are so many areas of the religion clauses where there are these assumptions about like how religion works and the kinds of things people have faith commitments to. And I think there are dominant views as to like what, you know, what makes sense. Oh, those are like the kinds of religious commitments that I'm familiar with. And the other ones are like these strange things. And they're so strange to me that I can't even recognize them as, as bona fide, genuine faith commitments. And I think both clauses ask us to resist that impulse with every fiber of our being. There's so many areas in constitutional law where like the language is, and this part I think you'll agree with, is like predicated on, on, a, on a Christian worldview. We have a church autonomy doctrine. We have a ministerial exception. You get a housing allowance under the tax code if you're a minister of the gospel, right? Yeah. It's the, the language um, and, and infrastructure of freedom is um, grounded in. There's this centripetal force towards um, a certain way in which faith is done. And I think it's like of vital importance that we not, we not embrace that and that we say, listen, people can be sincerely and have bona fide commitments to stuff that we find strange and reprehensible. They can want to, you know, thinking like Church of Lukumi Babaluai, they, they can, it can require the slaughtering of chickens. It can require you know, a whole, all different kinds of things. And when we as a society get in trouble, it's when we take a particular idealized platonic ideal of what religious commitments are. And we say, this is what religion is. And the stuff you're doing isn't really religion. It's something else. It's, it's the slaughtering of chickens. It's hate. It's, it's all this other stuff. You know, as a society, we are in a way better place. We are far better grounded when we say, I see what you're doing and I see your sincere commitment to it. And the way in which I come in and trump um, your commitments is because they're just some things that society can't live without certain kinds of protections. But I'm not going to undermine what your commitment, your religious commitment is. I'm not going to tell you it's not real faith. Well, I, I'm not going to well, try. To I wasn't saying that. I was saying for the pur for constitutional interpretation purposes under the Fractional Size Clause, which is not the same thing. Yeah, as well, but but I, but I think it's true for both. I think at its core, you know, those are the principles that I, I read into um, the First Amendment. And I guess my point kind of, you know, following your lead, like, and I think it's not just about law. I think it's a way of, of it's, it's, it's a, a good recipe or maybe the best recipe we have to deal with some of the most tragic circumstances we have um, okay. when people clash. One last thing about this, and then you're right, we spent the whole time talking about it, but we'll on a couple other issues and then um but michael it's in my view it's still line drawing and this is what i mean by that i would expect you and i would expect all decent civilized people to come out very strongly against child sacrifice no matter how important that was to a particular religious sect we would not put up with that in america and we should not if you sacrifice your child and then say my religion made me do it you're going to jail for the rest of your life, if not the death penalty. And that's a good thing. Not the death penalty part, but the, do we agree on that? Yeah. Okay. So then the only, so once you make, once we agree on that, then I think the only remaining question is, is um, what the religious person wants to do morally reprehensible in the way that child sacrifice is universally deemed to be morally reprehensible. So all the rules about how people of your religion deal with the preparation of food and, and, and other things, um, those, those are, those, those have no, I mean, leaving aside vegetarian issues, there, there's no moral content to that. 
it's not a moral content. It's a time, place, and manner type thing. It's you know, it, um, and and I don't think the government has a very strong interest in being concerned about that at all, if any interest. But when it comes to child sacrifice, yes, the government has substantial purpose. When it comes to facially discriminating and 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 making people feel bad about themselves intentionally. That's not child sacrifice. I'm not suggesting it is. But it's closer to child sacrifice than it is. There is a moral content there. And, and to see that, I think, and this is my very last question on this point, if we were talking race here, it would be much easier to see the problem. If this baker had said, I am not serving black people because my religion tells me that I shouldn't, as the owners of the barbecue place did in the South in the early 60s. Today, we would all shrug at that. Most of us would shrug at that and say, no, that's morally wrong. You not serving that person because of the color of his skin is morally wrong. You not serving a same-sex wedding because you think LGBTQ folks don't deserve to be married is morally wrong. Yeah, so how can I, how can I disagree with the line drawing point? I mean, ultimately, I think, I think, yeah, when we engage in strict scrutiny analysis, this is why some people are deeply critical of strict scrutiny. Right. That ultimately, it's line drawing and and in many ways you know the deep the deepest question on this point isn't you know the and i have a feeling what you think about all this but i don't know for sure isn't just about how we do it but who gets to do it and that that is a part of it of course yes yeah and so like when you're engaged in line drawing across moral terrain you know that's that's hazardous stuff and i fair enough relatively comfortable with the idea of having a process by which we appoint judges in the main i feel like it's it's a pretty decent system to try and identify people to engage in this sort of line drawing i mean judges engage in line drawing all the time obviously you yeah. know whether it's contract or tort law you know but these are these are tragic these are difficult situations um i feel pretty good about it and I recognize that like some people are going to do this line drawing differently than I would, mm -hmm. because that's the nature of line drawing. The Sunday closing and, law case. Yeah. And, and I ultimately, you know, I'm comfortable with our institutional response to the instability of strict scrutiny. That's the best I can come up with. Okay. Um, I find it far superior to the alternative in terms of trying to address these cases. So you said something that's going to take us on a, non-religious tangent, maybe that's a good thing, but I can't let it go. We have about 10 minutes left, but I can't let it go. You think the system is reasonably good at blah, blah, blah. So um, there's never been a court like the United States Supreme Court in the history of time. You think our current system of life-tenured, unelected justices interpreting a 200-year-old document or a 150-year-old document, whatever, that is impossible to amend is a good system? Well, it sounds like sounds like you love it. Um. <laughs> My views on this are well known. No, we, no, no country's ever done it. We're the only one ever. Like no, no, no democracy has ever done this. Here's a lot of power for life. Have fun. American exceptionalism. No, in all seriousness, you know, I am by disposition. I can't tell you why. Okay. But by disposition, um, I'm an institutionalist. I. I I, I'm risk averse. Um, I like the idea of norms built up over time that change, if at all, very slowly. Um, radical suggestions to me are usually things that I find just, um, I mean, the other version of this, constitutionally like um, off-putting. And I think in the main, we're doing pretty good. I disagree with stuff all the time. I think, I think in the main, um, the court is doing, courts writ large are doing a pretty good job. I, I still think they're engaged in law and legal analysis. I don't view it as politics all the way down. And I think, I think the idea. Neither do I, by the way. It's values all the way down. Not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's law. I think, I think they're, you know, all, no doubt informed by values, but I still think it's not politics. I think they're engaged in law. But um, if you told me, listen, you've got this system. Or we've got we got some people in the back room and they've come up with some ideas. 
and we want to give them a whirl. So what do you think about us kind of blowing this whole thing up and trying this new thing that we think is awesome? My instinct is I'm good. I'm, uh, well, let me ask you, let me ask, okay, let me ask you about that. And I'm sorry we're so far afield. We're off the, we're off off the road. You can go wherever you want to go. Okay. Here's where I want to go. I have a difficult issue involving my 13 year old, whatever it is. Should, my 14 year old, should, should I let them go to the mall by themselves? Some 14 year olds are, some 14 year olds aren't. I'm not sure what to do. Um, I go to my 10 closest friends or parents with similar age children and nine of them. Maybe ten of them say I wouldn't do it. You know, maybe in a year, but but I I wouldn't. Or, or, or whatever it is, I get a uniform answer from all ten. And these are people of different economic positions, different races, different religions. So it's a very nice mix of people, and they all say do X. Now they don't know my kid. I might do Y because I know my kid better. But the chances are, since I sought the advice to begin with, if ten out of ten say do X, I'm going to do X. No country in the history of the world does what we do with this court. You know, the Canadian Supreme Court and the Indian Supreme Court and the German Supreme Court and the Australian Supreme Court, they have a lot of stuff in common. None of them do what we do in terms of both life tenure and the um, virtual impossibility of amending a constitution. Does that count for something? That they they looked at our system in post-World War II, they thought, ah, judicial review, that's kind of fun. We're going to try that out. And we're going to create these constitutional courts and do these other things. And none of them picked life tenure. And none of them really picked originalism either, for that matter. Because going back in time is stupid. Doesn't that, doesn't, what's wrong with my analogy? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I'm curious about the level of generality that you're, you know, once we're talking about like 14-year-olds and asking our friends, like, <laughs> If I went to my backyard and asked 10 of my friends around me, should we blow up the Supreme Court? I mean, in terms of its structure right now, I think most of them would tell me no, if I just did that, meaning just to take a closer analogy to the example you used. So you want the friends in your analogy to be countries as opposed to the friends in your analogy to be friends. Um, But it turns out that the ending life tenure is now incredibly popular. I'm sorry. Ending life tenure well, is a majority view now. Yeah, yeah, may, may, I, I, not dominant, right? I mean, what do we? T- I, I don't know the, I don't know the polling on this, and call me skeptical on a variety of things, but yeah, I suspect if I did it, I'd get different kinds of groups and different kinds of stuff. And if I, if you were get, starting uh, a country tomorrow like ours, very similar to yeah. ours, would you give life tenure to Supreme Court justices? Oh, I got no idea. Okay, fair enough. I want to touch on two. One. You're, you're the only one. Again, you know. Again, my views are about um, my appetite for ins- for radical institutional change, which would obviously, I think, as you rightly point out, if I were starting something new tomorrow, it might be very, very different. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so we'll we have time for like two cases here. So this uh, this has been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, so this small town in New York has Christian prayers for two years. And public interest groups get upset about this, and they sue. Um, part of the real case, which was ignored at our argument, was school kids actually had to go once a year um, to this to this legislature, I believe. Um, and there was only Christian prayers. There were no Jewish prayers, no Muslim prayers. Um, and the court says, yeah, it's fine. No worries. And Kagan writes one of her most angry dissents, I think. That, that yeah. case is Greece versus uh, – out of something. Town of Greece v. Galloway. Town of yeah. Greece versus Galloway. Um, what's your view on that case? I'm very curious. I fear I'm on record. You can probably Google it. Not a fan. Okay. Um, probably doesn't shock you. May sh- I don't actually I have no idea what shocks you. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, you know, you know, we chatted about this the other week a little bit. I certainly have deep coercion worries. Like to me, the establishment clause when it's, and I think I'd like to think everybody agrees with this. Um, to the extent that, um, government rules, regulations, policies, practices, um, and somehow coerce individuals in order to engage in, in, in faith practices that aren't their own, this is very clearly an establishment clause violation. So now I have, I have deep sympathies for 
Also, the endorsement test, the idea that ultimately it's not just about coercion, but that when you know, government engage in, engages in practices that seems to endorse one faith at the expense of others, it makes individuals second-class citizens and, as a result, ought to also be um, unconstitutional. Now, there, there are two, I'm of two minds on this. You know, there are a lot of, like, jurisprudential puzzles around endorsement, you know, kind of this you know, bystander standing. There's a lot of things that are um, different about the Sketchy. endorsement test. So, yeah, I, it, it's 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 something that you have to you know think about deeply to to really decide if, as a theoretical matter, you can be committed to it. But my sympathy towards it, and it's sometimes sometimes the reason why I, I advocate for it, um, is because ultimately. I, I see it as prophylactic. You know, coercion is often a very hard thing to police, especially coercion is not like it's there or it's not there. It's like what degree of coercion exists. And sometimes it's hard to touch. And if you have an endorsement test, what it does is it further insulates um, the way in which religious, uh, religious individuals, religious minorities are treated in the United States. And some deeply, you know, for reasons kind of going back to the very first question you asked yeah. me, sympathetic to it. And so when Town of Greece came out, I think I wrote something, I don't know, a, a column where I think they titled something like uh, America doesn't see its religious minorities or something right. like that. Sure. And, sure. And, and I was, I was, un, I was unhappy with that. I thought the Town of Greece, you know, they had, I think, nine years straight of um, Christians delivering the prayer until, you know, threat of litigation commenced. Right. And you know, there's this concurrence by Justice Alito where he says something along the lines of it was like a bureaucratic whoopsie daisy. Like <laughs> they just. And and to me, that's that's a real, real problem. Like, does it the endorsement test again? I can't you know, there are puzzles. I can't get like I can't tell you I'm 100 percent committed to it, but I can tell you something like that has to play an important role. And the idea that we just kind of go with the flow and we let the um, infrastructure that is tilted in favor, you know, by demographics of certain ways of which, you know, government might do business. I mean, we have to have some sort of constitutional doctrine. I think that presses back against that. So the main reason I wanted to have you on, and thank you for coming on, um, was after our panel discussion a couple of weeks ago, I realized that you're actually, and this is a total compliment, you you are actually you hold a space that is very different. I'm sure there are some others who hold this space. I'm not sure I've met them, though. You are in favor of a strong free exercise system of exemptions and a strong free exercise clause. Well, the entire Republican Party is with you on that. Um, but you're also in favor of the uh, repealed establishment clause because the Roberts Court has basically repealed it. And it's very rare to meet somebody who both feels that the establishment clause should be enforced relatively strongly, um, and the free exercise clause should be enforced relatively strongly. And all of that leads to my last question, which is when we had our panel, we um, talked about how the Supreme Court went from government is not allowed to use people's tax dollars to give stuff to private religious schools, except for textbooks, some diagnostic testing, and bus transportation. That's it. That was the rule as incoherent as it was, and it was totally incoherent, but that was the rule. Then the court went to, if you're providing this stuff to private schools that aren't religious, you are allowed under the establishment clause to provide them to um, religious schools, but of course you don't have to. And then the Roberts Court in a trilogy of cases, ending with Carson versus Macon, says, no, you have to. Once you make the decision to assist secular schools, you must assist religious schools in the same way. And so my question is, since you believe in a strong establishment clause, and you're one of the few people who do, who also believe in a strong free exercise clause, why is it not an establishment clause violation in that context to use my tax dollars for religious purposes that I don't want my tax dollars used for? Not the same thing as using my money for a war I don't like or a social policy I don't like, because religion is different. You said that in the first two minutes of this thing. I think religion is special. It's different. Don't take my tax dollars and give it to religious schools. Don't do it. I don't know. Yeah, so like, if, if you piece together some of the views I've put on the table, I, you know, what's my, you know, what's my orientation to all of this? I'm, I'm looking for, you know, I said at the outset, you know, both the liberty and equality component to right. the, to the religion clauses. And 
I have these worries about the privileging of one faith over others in, you know, in the public square. And so when I look at funding cases and I look at um, governments who open funding programs for private institutions where individuals receive the funding based on secular criteria, um, the idea to me that somebody would become ineligible for that funding because of their faith commitments you know, violates core commitments of mine around the religion causes to me. And I mentioned this to you at the panel, you know, please forgive me. You said something like nobody ever in the sixties thought that this was a free exercise violation. I said to you at the time, like within my faith community, literally the leaders testified before Congress about this, said that they felt like it undermined their recognition. That was how they phrased it. Like, they undermine their recognition within American society that everybody else could access this kind of funding, but they, but they couldn't, even if they satisfied the secular criteria because they had religious commitments. And when I look at kind of the funding cases, um, both past and present, and I see the exclusion of somebody because of their commitments when they qualify based on secular criteria, that's the key to me. Definitely. Um, I see religious discrimination. It would be very different if the criteria weren't secular. I would start to, now I'd start to worry about, you know, establishment clause concerns. But, but, but Michael, hold, yeah, hold on, hold on. But, but the history of parochial school aid litigation in this country, Nyquist, this case called Nyquist versus something, something, yeah, bunch yeah. of cases where, and I'm sorry, this is just true. What was, Put in the books as a equality program for private and for private secular schools and private religious schools. I mean, in Nyquist, ninety-eight percent or something of the money went to religious schools. In most of these cases, if you go to the legislative record and whatever, you will see this is not being done to help. This is being done to help religious schools. That's the reason. It's not. Um, it's not to help. It, it, there, there, there is a, a very religious content to this. So I don't. When you said secular yeah. criteria, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think Ohio used secular criteria. And I think it was Nyquist to decide to give 90, 98% of the schools that get this money are religious. Yeah. Listen, if you know, one of the things that the establishment clause does, and again, these are the coercion worries and other things. Like, if you have, um, if if there is evidence of um, illegitimate legislative purpose, you know, you're going to be able to trip the establishment clause, but and and that was what the fights looks like looked like in the sixties and seventies. I said this to you the other week. Today it looks different. I'm living in a jurisdiction right now where um, you know, because of the way Title I funds work, California is required to provide for um special needs children, they're required to provide a uh free and appropriate uh public education. And if the school district can't provide it, then what they're required to do by federal law is to place that student at a private school that can provide it and have the tuition dollars flow to cover that child's education. And I've got institutions in my community, which is, you know, increasingly, I find as I get older, what matters to me more and more, as opposed to some of the academic questions. Um, I get that. That institutions that it's trying to launch and it can't launch them because there's just a rule that says, you can provide all the greatest stuff for the special needs kids that desperately need it, that the school districts can't provide. And we know that the only way you can launch these institutions is if you get the funding that Title I demands in order to make sure you have the resources to provide for these kids. And there are laws on the books that say, but if you're religious, we won't let you do that. To me, I read that, you know, Title I <laughs> um, wasn't, wasn't enacted for I don't think so. Maybe you have a different view on this in order to support religious schools. And the idea that there are children within my community on my block um, who can't access resources through a Jewish school that's willing to provide them because of their religious commitment strikes me as a violation of the First Amendment of, you know, of the highest order. And um, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm, but it's interesting. I fight it's, all the way down. Yeah, it's interesting because government support of schools that discriminate on the basis of race is not allowed. Theoretically, the law, the law, the, the Supreme Court's been very clear on this, both as a matter of statutory law under the IRS and the Constitution. The government is not allowed to support racially discriminatory private schools, yet the government is allowed to support religiously discriminatory private schools. 
Um, I don't know. Well, that's actually an interesting question. It's not, it's not clear to me that's true. Meaning, I have strange views on the constitutional conditions doctrine. Um, and we don't, want, we, don't want go, we don't want to start that with five minutes to go in the podcast. <laughs> let me just say the following. Yeah. It, is, it strikes me as remaining, remains an open question as to what kinds of conditions government can place on funding. I just think one that's off the table under the First Amendment is you satisfy the secular criteria. And the only reason we will not provide the funding is because you're religious. There could be a variety of other reasons they don't provide. No, but, but that's but but when you say, when you put it that way, we're going over time. But people can turn it off if they want. Um, when you <laughs> when you put it that way, that that's not exactly really what's happening. Um, the state governments in these cases aren't coming in and saying we don't like religion. In fact, I mean we're talking about Montana here in one of the cases, right? I mean. We're not talking about New York and California here in, in the Supreme Court cases. We're talking about Missouri. Well, I'm, ta I'm talking about California. I know you are. But the, what Missouri, Montana, <laughs> and Maine all said in this trilogy of cases was we take the Establishment Clause seriously. We take something the court used to call excessive entanglement with religion seriously. And we feel like once we get in the business of giving tax dollars to religious schools, um, uh, separate from generally available public services like police protection and fire protection, then we run across a different constitutional value, which brings us all the way back to the first thing I said, my second thing I, I said, my second question of this podcast, which at the end of the day, are we just balancing values here? Because it seems to me Maine has the right to say we want to steer clear of the Establishment Clause. Why doesn't Maine have that right? Well, I mean, I mean, at bottom, I think that's because that reading of the Establishment Clause is incorrect. And the good news for me, at least right now, is that, and, and again, this has always been kind of my view on that piece of the Establishment Clause. You've noted I like the endorsement test. Yes. I get weird by the minute. I hope you're feeling that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm feeling you're actually very brilliant, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, but like this is, it's not surprising that like as a member of a religious minority community, I want equal access to funding. I want to be treated the same. I don't want to be um, left out just because of my faith commitments. I want, I want different people of different faiths to be protected from coercion and maybe even prophylactically. And I want to make space for religion. It's, it's a very religious minority. By the way, this is the dominant view, I would say, like of, um, American Jewish institutions and in, certainly in the 1980s. I yeah, think that's sure. probably definitely at that point. And, and so it's not, it's not shocking that, you know, I come out in this way, even though I can give you lots of academic reasons why I think it's true. I think, I think, you know, all these, th these pieces make sense together. Um, so Maine doesn't have that option. The reason I would say it shouldn't have that option is because the court in the seventies was mistaken. Um, and in the sixties, but in the late sixties, seventies, mistaken about its reading of the establishment clause. And I think it's, it's doing a better job now. I think it's, um, commitment to, to principles of neutrality when it comes to funding are, are better, um, all told. Um, well, I'm all for neutrality. I'm all for neutrality. You know that, but what I'm not. But for I, yeah, but I just want to be. But I just want to be clear. Like, if the, in my view, certainly under Smith, if the government enacts neutral and generally applicable conditions on government funding, um, I think that would pass the free exercise test. You can go. I wrote this article, this essay recently. Um, funny people liked it, you know, because you never know what you're going to get from me. Um, <laughs> Uh, called there are no unconstitutional conditions on free exercise. Um, and some funny people started like tweeting in response, like, well, I guess you get it right 50% of the time. Um, and yeah, I think that's, I think there are ways to do it. Just don't do it. If your problem is certain kinds of conduct, then regulate that conduct. So that's, that's what Maine did. Right. But that Maine, that's what Maine followed up and did. They changed their regulations in order to put conditions on the funding. We'll see how that litigation goes. Yeah, I, I guess um, we, we, we characterize it differently. But you, you, I characterize it as there are many different ways to read the text and history of the Establishment Clause. And one reasonable way is to say what the court used to say, which is you, you can't give anything but textbooks. I thought that was wrong. My first law review article said that was wrong. I don't agree with that. But that's just differing interpretations. The next interpretation is, well, you can do it if you want to. I'm totally on board with that. The next interpretation is you must. And this is what you must do. You must use the tax dollars of some people to fund the religious education of others. So the, 
your way of characterizing is we're discriminating against religion by excluding them. My way of characterizing is the Establishment Clause protects my tax dollars from being used, not from the courts, by the way. In other words, to me, it's about main gain to decide this question because reasonable people can disagree on it. I, you can have the last word on the, you can have the last word on that. Um, all I'll say is, it's interesting. We started this conversation where you were pressing um, anti-discrimination claims, and I was talking about balancing. <laughs> right. And we're ending this conversation where I'm pressing anti-discrimination claims, and you're talking about talking about balancing. I'm not sure if there's a cautionary tale in there, there but there's something. There probably is, Michael. <laughs> there probably is. Hey, this has been great. Thank you so much. I, I learned so much from you a couple of weeks ago, and that's why I want to talk to you again. That's the first time we ever met, um, and I'm so glad I did. And I think I will. I do want to go on record as saying this, with the exception of the hate part of this podcast. I think reasonable people can disagree on almost everything we're talking about. Um, um, I, I, I do think it. I think what the baker did is morally wrong and shouldn't be protected by the law. But other than that, I think you know these are hard issues, and I'm really glad we got to discuss them. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for hanging out with me. A real pleasure.